Chapter 1. How all Cuban smuggling stories begin. A conversation with Michael Flatley. This is Gary Hyde. He's a boxing manager. At the bottom of his garden in Cork, there is a large building. It's his very own boxing gym. So welcome to our gym. See what all happens. There is a Cuban flag hanging above the boxing ring. You know, and the striker, we're not going to start saying we're Cuban all of a sudden, you know, but we, we actually do love the Cuban fighters, of course. On the wall, there is a poster of the first fight that he ever promoted. Billy Walsh against Miroslav Kubik. At the stage, he was a successful businessman. He ran a number of pubs in Cork, but he wanted to get into boxing, become a manager. But back then, I had no idea. I was like, yeah, flights from Belfast down here, six flights for you and five flights for you. And, and yeah, well, from Dublin, actually, no point going on two, two toll bridges, flights down for you as well, you know, so... When the final bell rung, Gary had lost 30,000 euro of his own money. That's a lot of Cuban pesos. The show cost about 55,000 euros and maybe we made 25,000 on the door. He went backstage trying to hide his discomfort. His guest of honour was there. So my guest of honour on the, on the night was, uh, was Michael Flatley. Yes, that Michael Flatley, river dance, lord of dance. He came up and he had this white shirt wide open down as far as his navel. So he said, Michael, what did you think of the show, you know? Kind of fishing for, for him to say, oh, it was the most amazing show I've ever been to in my whole life. But Michael Flatley didn't say that. He said it was a really good show, well put together, well matched. But the people need someone you can get behind from the very start, who can possibly go all the way. You need to go to one of the poor houses of the world. Find yourself a champion. That second, the minute he said it, I thought, Russia, Cuba, Rigondeaux. And that was that. Following one conversation with Michael Fadley, two weeks later, Gary Hyde would be in Havana. Chapter 2. El, el, el. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, he's asked why he went out to the desert. And Peter O'Toole says, because it's clean. All people who are drawn to Cuba, it's exactly the opposite. It's because it's dirty. That's why we go. Because everybody's life is at the extremes. While Gary Hyde was Googling Cuba boxers and defections, Breen Jonathan Butler was living in Havana. I was just training with Finan, very ordinary day. He's an American writer and a keen boxer and moved to Cuba to train here at the Rafael Trejo gym with ex-Olympic champion Hector Banent. And suddenly the gym just went dead silent and I heard whispers of L, L, L is here. And L, if a Cuban refers to it, which is the Spanish word for him, invariably refers to Fidel Castro. But as I was sort of looking around to see where, where is this L, Vinent said, you know, don't look now, but the greatest boxer who's ever lived is, is in the doorway. And I turned around immediately because I'm, you know, kind of clumsy. And uh, I didn't see anybody except what looked like a street kid who was in the doorway and he was smoking a cigarette in the shadows underneath the bleachers. And I said, I don't see anybody except that kid. 
and I say a kid because Guillermo is five foot five, 120 pounds. Um, and Fernand said, no, that, that's Guillermo Rigandiao. And he was L. When I looked, I, I got, oh my God, it's him. You know, I was puffing away on a cigarette, which is not what you're exactly used to with a two-time Olympic champion. And I went over and introduced myself. And he was polite, and he smiled. And as he smiled, I noticed the gold grill over his teeth was gleaming. And just to break the ice, I, I asked him where he got the gold that was over his front teeth. And he kind of chuckled and just said, well, I melted my two gold medals into my mouth. Chapter 3. A Word of Warning. This is the Rafael Trejo Jim in Havana, world famous. It is decrepit and battered. Two years after the revolution, Fidel Castro banned professional sports. That's why 44 years later, the greatest boxer to have ever lived earns 20 bucks a month. The most famous Cuban face after Fidel Castro is a boxer, which would be Teofilo Stevenson. So if you look at the the succession, the kind of continuum of great Cuban boxers, it goes Teofilo Stevenson, the next captain was Felix Sabone, and Felix Sabone handed over his captaincy to Guillermo Rigandiao. So he was the logical successor to that mantle of the crown jewel of Cuban sport. I think I wouldn't say he was friends with Fidel Castro, but yeah, he did tell me that he, he met Castro on many occasions. Castro was a big boxing fan, and the symbolic value of boxing in Cuba is that, um, you know, for such a small country, you know, small population, no money, um, the Cuban team was totally dominant over the Americans. And I think Castro was saying, you know, our fighters fight for something more meaningful than just money. And... It was one thing for Castro's champions to defeat all the Americans during the Olympics. I think their most successful Olympics was in the Barcelona Games. But the real coup de grace was then after defeating the Americans to then turn down millions to leave. And, you know, to say, as Stevenson said, what's a million dollars for the love of eight million Cubans? Chapter four, going on the lash on the false road. So the morning after the night he talked with Michael Fadley, Gary Hyde is hunched over his computer. I remember distinctly the next morning, maybe 7 a.m., checking out about Regan researching him big time. I knew a lot about him and knew all about his fights that he had over the years, but I wanted to find out where is he at now, where, you know, how am I going to get to him. You are probably wondering why that very second, Gary Hyde thought of Guillermo Regan well, they had met before, six years earlier. In 2001, the World Championships were held in all places, Belfast. Guillermo Rigondeau from Cuba in the blue shirts. Guillermo Rigondeau was there. So I went up to him, I think it even passed my mind that I was going to be a manager, boxing manager, promoter or anything. Gary Hyde was there. Southpaw could turn out to be one of the stars of these championships. You know, the first time I saw him was like uh, just at, at Wayne's. We got we got access to the Wayne's at one stage, and we saw all the Cubans like going from the from from the smallest up to the biggest. Gary and his friends followed the Cubans around, and then we were we we just got talking to him. Maybe maybe two or three days, we would we would have saw him every day, and then 
They were saying, come on, come on down to us and they had cigars and stuff like that. They were selling cigars yeah, they, they, and their tracksuits as well. They were selling their tracksuits as well. And then we were like, come on, let's go. We said the third night then we would have met, we would have met up with them. You know, we, we, they came out with us then, you know. It's what I get. And he started very, very fast against a good opponent in Sujimoto of Japan. They bought cigars. They were fun. They arranged to go out. We just went up the Falls Road, just different different bars in the in the Falls Road. Tony Dunlop knows the is the guy that brought us up, you know, and, and he 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 knew exactly where 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 we'd be well welcome, you know. And he'd sip the night before the fight, he'd no problem at all with drink. Pour a bottle of vodka or something. <laughs> he would sip away, he'd, like he he likes sipping with a straw and he he'd uh, he'd, he'd have a, a nice little drink he would, yeah. And he's really gone looking for him from the word go. Look at those body shots thundering. A couple of really solid right hooks to the body from Rigondo. I knew Agua and Ola. That was it. And he had he had he had Belfast 2001. That's all he knew. And, but we just got on brilliant. I mean, he was he was just a car. He was having his own jokes. He was telling his jokes, and and all the, all the lads in the Falls Road were laughing. And he thought he was brilliant, but shit, nobody understood yeah. anyone. But you get the vibe off him. He just got he just got a fantastic aura about him. They went out again, and then went out a third night. He's five foot four, you know, so he's a slight guy. But if he comes into the into the room, and I'm six foot three, and he's next to me, people would get out of his way, but they wouldn't take any notice of me. Six years later, Guillermo Rigonde, I didn't know it at the time, but he was going to see Gary Hyde again. This time in Havana. Chapter 5. The Notebook and Pen. I made up the plan, really, on, on the, um, when, I, when I booked for the flights. I made up the plan then of um, when I was on the plane. You know, and and I decided to go over there and um, and and just pose as um, uh, the pretense of a, as as a boxing writer. For every Cuban athlete that he would speak to about the idea of defecting, at a minimum, he would be looking at ten years in prison. And he spoke to many Cuban athletes. So Gary Hyde is the kind of person who looked at that as a challenge and as an adventure. He got the props he needed: a notebook and a pen. And we got straight on the job then the next morning, like 10 o'clock, we started searching around to the boxing gyms and we knew the names of the places to go. He paid some people in the gym for information. One of the boxers in the gym who got maybe $20 or $50 off, he called the school, he spoke to Rigano, and he made an arrangement for us to meet him in some restaurant right in the main square in, in Cuba. And that's what happened. He was here in Parque Central that Gary Hyde met... Guillermo Rigonde. Oh, he was screaming, first right away screaming, and he, he, he lets off a little squeak. He'd be moving down, making noises like that, and, and throwing the arms around me, and, and then he would exaggerate then that he missed you, and all. Yeah. you know. He, he's, he's a player then that way, you know? he would exaggerate that, that he missed you, and where have you been, and why didn't you come to see me before, and all this, you know. So within the first 20 minutes of, of talking with him, he was telling us, ah, so how's your career going? I'm watching you. You're on that. You won Athens since I met you last. And, you know, you know, like you can imagine even the conversation. I mean, since the last time I met you, you won another gold medal in Athens, you know, in the, in, in the Olympics. And, and, and then he said, yeah, and I'm going to be the first to win four gold medals. So he was going to be four-time Olympic champion. And, uh, and that's, that's, we kind of sank that. And then, you know, we're kind of disappointed and thinking like, Okay, what's plan B, you know? <laughs> if Rigondeau uh, doesn't come out, you know? So um, so then as, as the night went on, like in, like maybe an hour or so later, 
he was saying that he wanted to go professional. He wanted me to manage him and take him away and, and get TV deals. And he had no idea about how it works, you know. But he said he wants to be a world champion and he, he he's going to be a superstar. And come on, let's let's go. And I thought, yeah, I knew this would be easy. <laughs> you know, I, I I was obviously delighted now, thinking like, oh, flipping. No, that's the first part of the plan now. The next is get a contract, you know. And then once the contract is sorted, then get him out. You know, so like we only had the first part of three parts, really. Gary Hyde reached out to another Cuban fighter, Mike Perez. He was a junior world champion. He won the gold medal, stopped everybody on his way to winning it. And then in, in 2005, he boxed Kenny Egan, our own silver medalist from Beijing. And he beat Kenny Egan, like massive amount of points, like 32, 12 or something like that. Crazy amount of points. And, and I said, if somebody can do that to Kenny Egan, and he's kind of, his kid was only 18, I said, we want him as well, so we get, we get him. So I reached out for him in the very, very same way, exact same way as Rigondeau. Everything was exactly the same, only that press said, I'm going now. I'm ready to go now. I want to go to Ireland today. You know, so we signed him up the day after I met him. He had two professional contracts. He didn't want them on him if he was stopped going through the airport. Well, uh, no, I didn't leave with the contracts. Carlos, my friend, went to DHL and he sent the contracts home. And we tracked the contracts. And when we saw the contracts were, say, in Mexico, then we were comfortable that we're not going to get caught with a contract waved in front of us at the airport. They were on their way back to my house anyway. <laughs> so, so, but they were signed. You know, I know the two boys were signed and we had the first part of the job done. Chapter 6. Family. Yeah, it's, it's Tommy Hyde and his sunny side outfit. You know that he boxed for sunny side. On the wall of the boxing gym, there is an old black and white photograph of Gary's uncle. He's just standing with a with a, a curtain draped behind him, and he's standing on a carpet in a portrait, and he's uh, he's leaning forward on his left leg. Uh, he passed away in my hands. Well, he was passing away in his last few minutes. Like, and then I was calling his name out in the national stadium when the Irish senior champion and and the welterweight champion for 1946 in the red corner from the Sunnyside Boxing Club in Cork, Tommy Hyde. Gary's married and has five children. Hello. <laughs> How are you? That's Fiona. That's my wife. Gary Hyde had 30 people working under him at the time that he could have sent over to talk to Guillermo, talk to athletes, be fixers, uh, set up contact. I mean, there was... A lot of very safe ways to approach this, but Gary said, why would I let somebody else have this adventure? You know, I'm the one who's thought of it. I'm the one who wants to, you know, take this ride. And for me, that was one of the major strange points of the entire story is anybody can understand why Guillermo was torn about staying or leaving with his wife and kids and the money awaiting him in the United States and all of that. It's Gary Hyde, who's very wealthy, very established, has a wonderful family, who would leave five kids behind and face potentially never seeing them again because he'd be locked up in a Cuban prison for an adventure. Yet it was almost like he couldn't take it seriously. 
I mean, I'm sure he did take it seriously, but he couldn't stop laughing as he was detailing all of the obstacles and challenges and risks. Yeah, there's some things you better off not not knowing about, really. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, don't tell her. There's no pillow talk anyway in this one, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so when we were talking about, when I was talking about going to Cuba, like I wasn't going to say, like, oh, this could end up with me, like, getting a lot of time in the, in, in a Cuban prison. Like, and say, why would you do that? Like, and everything's going so well for you. Uh, yeah, but she had no idea about, like, she had no idea, like, that, that Cuban fighters can't leave and have playing with me. You know, she didn't know like that that we were talking about uh, getting them out some other way. You know, so like uh, even at that time, I didn't know how I was going to get them out. You know, but I, I was going to get them out. Chapter seven: The Old Fisherman from Cork and the Sea. These are the sounds of the harbor in Havana. There is a heavy security presence. In two thousand and seven, a Cork fisherman was going to arrive here. At that stage, Rigando didn't want to leave. He said he'd come back to me and he'd let me know when he wants to leave. But he's not going yet. But Perez was, from the second he met me, he was going now, Mike Perez. He was going right now and he went, let's do it. You know, and he was saying, pronto, 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 pronto. Every time I'd come on the phone to him, all he was saying, soon, 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 soon. So at that stage then, I had to park up Rigando and I had to leave him to one side because he wasn't ready to go. So like it's no point getting the logistics right if he, if the fighter didn't want to go. I had him on contract, but that contract doesn't get in the in the board and leave and all that. And I came up with one great idea. I got a guy that I know it was a fisherman. He's old, like he's in his seventies, and he knows his way around the sea, like you know. And and I said I'm going to talk to him. I says and see what he venture over there and take him up. No problem. He says no problem. It's it's just involved a bit of, a bit of getting on the sea and that with a boat. Oh, that's my business there. I said, you have to go to the Bahamas and then come across. There was no issue whatsoever. And he rented a fishing boat and he went across to Cuba. He was 73 back then, so, like, if he's still alive, like, he's 80, now. Mm. And I thought it mightn't even happen. Next thing he phones me and he says, I'm here with your man. Oh, he says, and he likes a few drinks. <laughs> so Mike Perez, like, was off-season. He's not boxing. He got kicked off the team because they got suspicious. And he got kicked off the Cuban team, so he's having a few drinks with the Corkman. <laughs> and the Corkman is 72. Mike Perez is 20. One is white, one is black. And, you know, they, they just, you just don't see them together. Like, you know, so, so he's telling me, like, that I, I'm here now with Joe Felices, and he's fond of a few drinks, he says. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? Yeah, that's grand. Don't worry about that. Get him on a boat and get him out of there. And he was in an apartment with Mike Perez for maybe two weeks. He, did, he doesn't speak a word of Spanish either, you know, and Mike Perez at the time didn't speak any English. So he was in the apartment with him over there, and he was seeing how he'd get him out, and he was thinking of running him down at night time and bringing him up, but he, said he, he couldn't do it with the security. And then he went up the, uh, the coast a bit, and he reckoned he could do it there. While the fisherman and Mike Perez waited, Gary went to Mexico. He met someone who knew someone who knew someone who put him in touch with somebody. Whatever they were, they were criminal. They phoned me and they said, Hi, Mike, we got your fighter. A Mexican gang carried Mike Pere across on a speedboat. This guy said, uh, I, I got your fighter. And I said, Can I, where are you you know? And he says, We're in Cancun. I said, Can I speak to you? I knew they were after picking him up, but they picked him up. They were three days on the, on the water, three days on, on the sea. What happened was the Navy ship was berthed in Cancun and they couldn't come ashore. When I got there, I met Mike, and he was destroyed. He'd like 100, 150, 200, maybe 2,000 uh, uh, mosquito bites. 
all his face, all his body, all his hands down, just eat alive mosquitoes because they were out there for two days and they ran out of fresh water as well. So they were out in the boat for two days and they couldn't come ashore and he was just ate alive by the mosquitoes, you know, 24-7. He was in a bad way from that. But like, I just threw my arms around him and it was like, it was like he was like my long lost son, you know, I had my arms around him and well, he went straight into a jacuzzi then because he was, <laughs> he was like covered in salt water and, and, and bites. So he was in a jacuzzi and I was, I was just sitting down watching him in, in, in this, uh, it was actually a jacuzzi in the, in the hotel, in the room of the hotel. And he was splashing in the, there was like suds, you know, like, like a foam party. He was, it was suds everywhere and he was never in a jacuzzi before. But, and the black guy then as well and everything, he comes up in the white foam everywhere. And the black guy and I'm thinking, oh, we, we cracked it. So he was the first one to come out on the speedboard, first boxer. So Gary Hyde had one boxer, but things were to get a lot more complicated for Guillermo Rigonde. Chapter 8. Everything went to hell in Brazil. Bien. Eh, mi nombre es Jorge Hernández. Eh, yo tuve todos los títulos en el boxeo como tal. This is Jorge Hernández. He was Guillermo Rigonde boxing coach. He talks on the terrace of his home. He remembers the poor boy, Guillermo, from coffee-growing area, who came to Havana. They had much success, until the two-time Olympic champion went to a tournament in Brazil. Defections didn't happen on the island itself. It usually happened far, far away, at international competition. Yeah, just everything went to hell in, in Brazil. They were at the tournament when Guillermo Rigonde and another boxer disappeared. They were missing for two weeks. And they torn up. Guillermo returned home in disgrace. You know, so, so I was in I was in contact with him a lot at that time. I made contact with him just after that and asked him what it was all about and he denied it, that he was signed with anyone, you know, which, um, you know, he denied everything that to me about signing with anyone in Brazil, but he just said that he, he went to a party and he came back late for the, he, he was supposed to come out for the finals of the, the Pan-American Games and that, um, that he, he never got back in time and then he was afraid to come back because he was late. Guillermo's de attempt at defection, I think, in Brazil in 2007 represented not just a turning point in Cuban sport, but in Cuban society on the whole. When, when Rigondeau returned to Cuba after, after the failed defection, Fidel Castro publicly announced that he was a traitor and that by deserting the team in the championship was the same as a soldier leaving his comrades on a battlefield, that he was a deserter and that he was a traitor. I think it'd be fair to characterize it as a national soap opera. It was on the news every day. The population at that time, the majority of the population, even though they were not legally permitted to voice this feeling, was sympathetic for all of his reasons to leave. Doesn't mean they weren't torn by that decision. I mean, Guillermo was leaving a wife and two kids behind, but I think overall they were sympathetic. And that sent shockwaves across Cuban society. And I think that's why Fidel Castro, despite being ill and, you know, not publicly seen, made a point to personally brand Guillermo a traitor so that people would have total clarity about what his position was on the matter 
and also to instill, I think, a, a threat that if anybody followed suit with what Guillermo and Lara had attempted to do, that the punishment would be totally severe. So he was kicked off the Olympic team for Beijing in 2008, which is August, and then he was back on rations. He was Everything was taken off. The money he was getting every month, he didn't get that anymore. And then he was told he'd never travel out of Cuba again. Once, once he was thrown off the team in 2007, yeah, he was drinking the high percentage beer that was available and he was chain smoking as he sort of stared out of his um, little duplex. He was very depressed, very down, very down himself. I mean, Rigondeau was very down after he came back from Brazil. He had nothing, I mean, his pride possession was a car that he got after the Olympics. It was a Mitsubishi Lancer. He never had any fuel for it, but it was his pride possession at the time. And they took that back, took his car back off him. Yeah, it was disastrous. But he was completely ostracized in Cuban society and under 24-hour surveillance. And all of his teammates and coaches were forbidden to speak with him. So he was completely ostracized. And um, even people who lived next door to him would ignore him on the street. I mean, he was one of the most notorious defectors, unsuccessful defectors in Cuban history since the revolution began. So um, he was in a terrible, terrible spot. Chapter 9. The Ghost of Guillermo. At a park in Havana, some bald men argue about who was the greatest fighter. Some mention the name Rigonde. Rigonde. In the boxing gyms around Havana, People are reluctant to talk about Guillermo Rigonde. You can record the noises they say, but we can't talk about him. One day people woke up and Guillermo Rigonde was gone. It was everywhere. It was, like, it was everywhere. Rigonde was out and write-ups everywhere. And the internet was on fire with Rigonde was out. He had crossed the Florida Straits. In February 2009... These people in Miami brought out Rigano and they brought it on them on the same route and the same people that I used to get my guy out. A Mexican gang on a speedboat. I was quite happy that everybody was coming out. But if a fighter I was signing was coming out using the route that I set up, well then of course I'd be upset about that and that's what happened. Guillermo. Because I was the one that, that, that went for him, I was the one that signed him from the beginning. I went over to Cuba and I got him and I signed him and, 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 and he liked what he heard and, and, and we liked what we heard with each other and we had a good relationship and, and I signed him so if I signed him and now he's out because of my mode of transport and, and, and I'm his, con his, his contracted manager well then I have to fight for that then if, if, if I don't they'll come and take the rest of my fighters Gary Hyde believes they use his route Guillermo Rigonde crossed the shark infested waters and into the world of professional boxing, dunking, and endless litigation. The safest place for him 
was the center of a ring. And you know, Guillermo uh, Rigondeau is uh, Cuba Libre, you know, that's for fighting for freedom for Cuba. They had to escape. But in it, without a doubt, they were bullying me, thinking like like Don King. Don King had a paperwork for 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 some while, uh, for a couple of weeks, and and he he sold the contract to Kariba, and he told Kariba that some Irish guy who knows nothing about boxing uh, says he has paperwork on him, but he says, but but don't take any notice of that. Uh, down in Florida, he had to get on the boats, the rafts, and brave the hazards of the ocean in the shark-infested waters to seek freedom. There were competing interests to get Guillermo off the island. He was very aware of how perilous a journey it was to escape. And of course, let's remember, it's smugglers' boats that are taking him out. He, as a Cuban athlete, is the most expensive human cargo on Earth, because if he washes ashore anywhere else but Cuba, he is worth millions of dollars to whoever is in control of him. And where do they seek that freedom? With old glory right here. This is the only country in the world that people try to break in rather than to break out. Rigando, as I said, he don't lie. He's a, he's an honest person. He 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 wouldn't he can't look in somebody in the eye and tell them a lie. It's just not it's not his makeup. But he'd run with the hair and chase with the hounds. This kid had had won gold medals and had to sell cigars in, in ones and twos to make an earning. The joke in Cuba from people I spoke to was that Guillermo, along with many of the other Olympic champions, signed more contracts to leave Cuba than they did autographs. None whatsoever. The court said, did you sign on such a date? Yes. Uh, and did Rigondeau sign? Yes. And Rigondeau agreed in an affidavit that he did sign in that date mm-hmm. uh, in 2007. He agreed in the affidavit that he did sign. And, uh, and uh, so, so that was basically the, the nuts and bolts of the case. It is not often that a four-round pro debut fight ends up getting co-feature status, but when it's one of the best amateur fighters of this generation turning pro, things change. Guillermo Rigondeau has been waiting for this moment, and now he'll face Juan Noriega to start a career many feel is destined to be dynamic. For most Cuban amateur stars, a moment like this will never arrive. Years of sweat and sacrifice go into becoming a world-class fighter, yet the reward attached to that risk isn't always there. Now for Rigondeau, the sky's the limit. Free from communism and diving headfirst into the pure, raw marketplace of pro boxing. Chapter 10. Family. Again. I suppose you could say this is a story of two men. One who risked his life with his family to smuggle Cuban boxers, and the other, a Cuban boxer who left his family. Bring Jonathan Butler visited Guillermo's wife in Havana, Farah. She assured him that Guillermo was a decent person who sent back money. She said he was traumatized by his mother's death that he couldn't return for. Guillermo Jr. is there. He carries a poster of his father into the room. The poster is bigger than him. I miss him, Guillermo Jr. says. I miss watching him fight. My father is my hero. Because this decision to stay or go has affected every single Cuban family, whether they remain in Cuba or have left, as well over a million of them have. 
um, to the rest of the world and primarily in South Florida. So it tells you that it's like this civil war fought across 90 miles um, and just no family has been left intact. It's uh, a filthy, filthy war in terms of just the damage it's done in just devastating the family dynamic across an entire island of people. Chapter 11, That Sad Face. And then they give a 30 second or a one minute break. So that's it, that's, that's it. We'll hear this beat first. And off she goes then for, for two or three minutes. On the back wall, there are the posters of all the fights Gary and Rigo were involved with. Dallas, Las Vegas, New York, Japan, City West. There's Rigo and Don Cardo over here. Just on, on that poster, that was in Dallas in front of like That was my first big, big show. Yeah. That was like 60,000 people in the Cowboy Stadium in Dallas. And I, like, I kind of thought I made it then, you know. Rigonde was to become world champion. Gary is now a successful boxing manager. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's about the best of it. <laughs> That's all the same, <laughs> They worked together for seven years. An odd couple, like capitalism and communism. Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I simply, there's no, there's no other word for it. No, I mean, I adore the kid. I adore him, and you know, and, and I don't believe that there's any bad bone at all in him. You know, he's, he's true and he's straight when I'm with him. At the end of the year, Gary's contract with Rigode will run out. There is a dispute. No matter what happens now, even if he, t- even if he was to turn nasty on me now and, and say, oh, I don't want to go with you. Look, I've, had, I've had nine years with him. Mm. You know, like, I, you can't just forget all those nine years. You know, that, that buzz where you, where, you, where, you, where you have the pins and needles in your head, where you have nerves, where you, where you see his foot going into the sock when he's fighting Nonita Denier, who's a murderous puncher, and you're thinking, oh, please, God, when, it's, when, it, when his foot comes out of that sock, that, that he's after winning, or that he's going to have to get knocked out. And he's putting his foot into the sock. And you're saying, I hope the next time I see that foot that he's after winning or he's not after getting knocked out. You know? <laughs> I leave you with a story about Guillermo Rigonde winning a world title. It was in a Cowboy Stadium, Texas. You know, to win a world title and to make hundreds of thousands of dollars from a guy who was making $20 a month when he won his second Olympic gold medal. Um, He's the saddest guy in that stadium. He's the world champion, and his head is down, and I can, I can feel it. I know what's wrong. They're all jumping around him, and he's sad, and nobody can, 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 can register why he's so sad. He's sad because of his family. He's sad because he's full of plastic people all around him. He said, because he, he doesn't know who he is anymore. You know, he's a superstar boxer with all these people hanging off him. And, and for that moment, you can just, that shows me what Rigando is, the sincerity of him. After he won that fight, he's so, so sad. I drove Guillermo home from, from that fight. And he had the belt, which was almost bigger than him, in the back seat of the car. And I remember saying that to him. Um, you just look so sad when you won. You look totally alone. 
and he was surrounded by, you know, his whole entourage. And he said, well, wasn't I alone? You know, you know, who was really there? And I thought, you know, it, it, in my mind, it just turned to somebody stranded on a desert island collecting diamonds. Like, what do you do with them? Who, who can he really share the joy of, of this victory or the riches of this victory? I mean, all his family, everybody he's ever known is on this island that he can never return to. 